You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 233 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Oh, how I wait for those words every week, <laughs> Valerie. Good. How are you, Al? <laughs> I don't say it like that. So do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we how are you? The, didn't we have that lady with a three-year-old? How are you, Al? <laughs> You would never know that I did speech as an extracurricular activity with Mrs. Gig after school. Mrs. Gig school. would be Devo by yeah, your yeah, Devo. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right, where are we? Okay, so yes, uh, well, I am fine. Thank you, Valerie. I say in my very best, most articulate voice. <laughs> What's been happening? What have you been doing? What have you been up to? Well, I have been um, roadieing, as I, I think we talked oh, about yeah, last roadying, week. Roadieing, yes. I've been roadieing, which has been good. Do you wear black? Um, uh, generally speaking, if I'm doing evening gigs, I wear black because that's kind of like all I have to wear out these days is matching black things. Right. Um, you know, fashion it doesn't really – I don't go anywhere, so my fashion is, is, is fairly backward. Um, so there's a bit of black at night and also it helps me to, you know, blend in. Um, but also – but during the day, no, no, I just hide in the audience during the day, so that's fine. Uh, it was a daytime gig, so, you know. Great. Just, so you yeah. – so just in case the listeners – we've gotten some new listeners. Who have you been roadieing who, for? Who've, turn, who've turned off now because we've spent <laughs> <laughs> five minutes going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and talking about roadieing instead of uh, writing. Instead of writing, yes. Uh, I've been roadieing for my son, Joe, um, who's building himself a music career at the age of 14. Um, but, you know, I do other things too. I write as well. You know, in between roadieing, I actually do write things, which is a bit fun. Um, and I have been doing some of that. Uh, I've been working on some manuscripts that I've had and I also started a new manuscript, which I think we talked about yeah. last week. So I've been doing some work on that, which has been good. Um, and the other thing I've been doing, and this is something that I uh, probably should start talking about soon, so might as well be today, is that um, I'm on the board for a new Readers and Writers Festival in my area, mm. and I have been um, I've been going going to committee meetings. Right. <sighs> yes. That, okay. <laughs> and we've all agreed that we've all agreed that I'm very very good behind the scenes and I get stuff done and so I don't have to go to the committee meetings anymore. <laughs> oh really? So what is your role though? What are you responsible for doing while you are on this board for the Readers and Writers Festival? Well, it's the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival. It's going to be on in August on the 4th of August and it is uh, my job is the children's section of the festival. Um, so I'm organizing so a, a, a program that will uh, take place 
as part of the festival, um, which is very exciting. I can't talk about who's coming yet, but I, I will at some point. Mm. Um, but I've also been involved in, you know, organising authors for the the adult program. I've been uh, involved in, you know, just kind of getting stuff done, a bit of fundraising, a bit of throwing myself at people saying, give us money, mm. you know, all of the things basically. So it's an interesting thing. It takes up quite a lot of headspace. Yeah, I imagine um, it would. Yeah, like I woke up in the middle of the night the other day going, we need a welcome to country and it needs to be a really good one because it's a local festival and, you know, yes. all of that sort of stuff. So, we, yes. yeah, like there's just a whole range of different stuff that we uh, that that has to be taken into consideration. And, of course, so many people involved in this stuff. And, mm. you know, so I'm out there peopling, which, as you know, it's not something I do on a regular basis. So my peopling skills do need a little bit of work. But anyway, does not play well with others, I think, should be my T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, are you enjoying it though? When is the festival? It's can on we come? the four, oh, it's on the fourth of August. I'd love you to come, Valerie. Awesome. Perhaps we can perhaps we can podcast from there. Maybe Ooh. we can um there's a couple of fantastic authors coming that we could probably inveigle onto our podcast, yeah, I think. So yeah, what a good idea. On either side, maybe we'll work on that. But um yes. yeah, so it we uh, might I, have I, I will listeners. have more details as as things get closer. Um but for now I'm just down in the trenches trying okay. to get the actual stuff. Well we, we might have some listeners in the Shoalhaven area. If you are in the Shoalhaven area, ping us on social media or certainly let us know in the podcast community on Facebook. If you haven't yet joined the podcast community on Facebook, it's free to join. It's just a great listener community. All you need to do is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So anyway, ping us in there if you're in the Shoalhaven area. Um, We'd love to know. Okay. So, well, I have been doing quite different things. What have you been doing? (laughs) I've been making chocolate crackles. What? It's so You did this one other time, didn't you? Yeah. This is not your first attempt at chocolate crackles. I remember us about 50,000 episodes ago discussing Mm. chocolate crackles and me like falling over with shock that you'd actually melted Kofa. Yeah. Isn't that that. an amazing substance? Isn't it? What is it? I don't even know. I don't even know, but it's good. (laughs) Best best not thought about. Um, So why were you making chocolate crackles? I I make it like every so often. So, yeah, it was two years ago actually and (laughs) – uh, all right, I'll tell you. Um, I make them for my birthday, which is uh, very soon. So um, oh. I love chocolate crackles and I love eating chocolate crackles. Facebook hasn't told me it's your birthday. Cause I, I rely on Facebook. I don't let Facebook know. You don't let Facebook know. Well, I make it private, you know what I mean. Uh, do you know what? I did that one year. I thought I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna go under the radar, and it was so disappointing because <laughs> nobody remembers. No one remembers unless Facebook tells them. Yes. And so, you know, if you if you actually have your birthday on there, you get like eight million people going yay and balloons and the whole bit. You know, congratulations and whatever. You get all that um, little videos. Like it's like a little party over yes. there. Um, yeah, I never. Get so that. if you don't have it, you get it's like just nothing. It's like this deafening silence. Mm. So anyway, I make chocolate crackles and I can't wait to eat them. All right. Well, really happy good. birthday, Val. Thanks. I'm, sh- I'm sure the whole community out there is wishing you happy birthday, even though they don't know that it's happening because it's not on Facebook. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> if it's not on Facebook, did it really happen? I know. That's the thing, right, these days. It's, um, <sighs> yeah, we spend way too much time on Facebook, but, hey, it is a bit addictive and I do enjoy connecting with everyone there. So let's move straight on to our 
um, to the world of writing and publishing this week. We have a link um, which you've got for us from Anne R. Allen's blog called You Can, in capital letters, Write mm. a Publishable First Novel, 10 Tips for Writing Successful Debut Fiction. Now, why did you share that with us, Al? Well, I think because um, there's a lot of discussion out there in the writing community about how, you know, your first manuscript, your first completed novel is um, probably not going to be publishable. And most people will talk about the fact that their first novel is in a drawer and will remain there for the rest of its life, the rest of their lives, the rest of everybody's natural born lives. Mm. Um, uh, so, but Anne R. Allen says that this does not need to be the case, basically. Um, they usually say, because generally speaking, an actual, the debut novel that is published is generally not an author's first. There are, of course, yep. um, you know, exa- uh, what do you, what, what's the word I want here, Val? I've had a complete, exceptions. 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 I was going okay. ex- to say examples to the rule, which is not yes. what I was up There are, of course, exceptions to the rule. I'm thinking of, um, I think, Hannah Kent. I think that her first novel was her first novel ever, but she'd also yes. been writing it for about four years at that point. Um, so there's this idea that, you know, people have been writing a long time, like it's going to be their fourth or fifth manuscript that they've actually completed um, that will actually end up published on the shelves. And author Melody Campbell had written a blog post about the fact that um, 3.6 manuscripts is the average for a traditionally published oh, wow. author. That's how many novels you have to write. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, that Anne is saying that not every first novel has to be a practice novel. Mm-hmm. Um, some first novels make a big splash. And this is really interesting because she, she puts those novels into two one of two categories. And the first one is novels that appeal to non-readers, which I think is a really interesting um, category when you think about it. So it's books like Fifty Shades, mm-hmm. Ready Player One and Harry Potter. Um, and the reason that people run to bookstores to buy those kind of books um, and they and they appeal to non-readers who don't usually buy books is because they hear so much about them. Yes. So, you know, there's an awful lot of discussion, you know, of, of people talking about them and, they, and, and everyone goes, I need to read that because I want to see what everyone's talking about. It's that kind of idea. Yep. But as, as she says, the problem is that books in that particular category only happen about once every five to ten years. Yeah. Like that's, a, that's a long time to be, to be waiting for, it, for that. Um, and then, of course, the second category is novels that appeal to voracious readers so yeah. these are the same but different books. So these are the ones that have something new to say but fit neatly into a category that readers are already buying a lot of books of, a lot of oh. copies of sort of thing, yeah, which is quite as interesting. And she she um, she puts Donna Tartt's A Secret History oh, yeah. into, into that. Uh, into that sort of area. Um, so I guess, you know, like you're either appealing to voracious readers or you're trying to write something that, that non-readers will read, which is really, I don't know where I would begin to try and do that. Um, but she also has some terrific uh, tips for giving your first novel a better chance in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the first one is to write your novel, your first novel, in a genre that's being read. Yep. So you know, you have to look at what the market is looking for. Now, that doesn't mean to say you write to the market because if you start writing vampire fiction, I mean, that's already gone really. But if you start writing whatever it is that's really popular now, you're already behind. Domestic noir. 
yeah, you've got to start sort of looking at what, you know, what's going to be in, in those sorts of areas is going to be the next big thing, which is not that easy to pick. But there are certain areas like crime, you know, and romance mm. and those kinds of genres where there's always going to be a readership. The readership is there and it yes. is a very hungry, hungry readership. So you want to basically have a look at um, – you, I mean, the best way to kind of get the feeling for what's going on in those markets is, of course, to read, read, read in those markets, get a feeling for what's actually the kinds of themes and the kind of threads that you're starting to see. Um, but, yeah, and, and also the, the, the other thing I think is quite interesting is that she suggests that you, you, with your first novel, if you want it to be publishable, that you avoid experimentation with point of view mm. in your first unless you're right unless you're planning to write some kind of disruptive literary fiction thing that is going to take over the world um which is not easy let's face it um you know try and stick to a, a to give readers what they kind of expect as far as you know one or two points of view stay with those people don't confuse readers um because you're only going to conf- experimentation is a fantastic thing and it's a wonderful thing to practice and all of that sort of stuff. But you've got to think about who, who's going to be on the end of your experiment. And if you're sending it to an agent or you're sending it to a publisher and they're confused in the first three paragraphs, they're not going to keep reading. They won't keep reading. Save your experiments to when you're an established writer. Yes. I would say. Or unless you're writing, you know, like it's, I mean, that's, that's easy for us to say. Like some of the most amazing fiction is experimental fiction. I mean, it's been around for 50 years. It doesn't look experimental now, but it was mm. at the time. Um, but it's not necessarily like a walk-up start to getting your very first manuscript over no. the line with the publisher. So um, those kinds of things. Um, so there's, you know, there's some fairly good uh, basic information in this post, you know, following standard guidelines if you're writing genre fiction. You know, you're trying to trying to create a brand-new genre with your first novel is mm. going to make it a very hard sell. So you need to kind of maybe look at the, the genre that you're writing, whether it be fantasy, whether it be sci-fi, whether it be horror, and you know, there are you, whatever you whatever you say, whatever you do, you got you're working within um, guidelines there because you're working with reader expectation, and reader yes. expectation is a very very important thing in genre fiction. So anyway, I Absolutely. just thought it was. I thought it was an interesting read because, you know, there, there is a lot of um, mythology. There is a lot of discussion out there about the fact that, you know, first novels never sell and you're never going to get your first manuscript published. But people do. Yes, and, people you know, do. And has some suggestions and some tips there for how you might be one of them, basically. And I think that one of the best ones is the final one, which is don't rest on your laurels, in that once you've finished – you know, your great Australian novel or your great American novel or your great UK novel, whatever, make sure you start your next one. Get busy because you're only going to hone your craft further the more and more you write. Plus, if this one is a goer, remember your publisher is going to ask you, have you got another idea going already? Yeah, yeah. What else have you got? Yeah, what else have you got? So definitely don't rest in your laurels and wait another 20 years before you write another one. Mm. I I know some authors have done that, but, but, you know, don't. (laughs) Um, They may have waited another 20 years or 10 years, like Donna Tartt, The Secret History. It was 10 Mm. years before her next novel was published. But you can bet bet that she was writing during that time, even if it did take, take 10 years for the actual novel to come out. All right. 
Let's move on to, I found this interesting um, article from Quartz and it is a chart, an interesting chart, but um, that shows that books in cheaper genres are dominated by women. And Mm. it looked, this, you know, uh, research looked at 2 million (laughs) individual titles published in North America between 2002 and 2012. And they basically determined the gender of the author and realized that the trend was that the average book price of a genre goes down as the genre gets more female. Now, this is not readership. This is uh, the author, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because around the same time um, that this came out, there were the ABC. I found an article by the ABC called "Can You Make a Living as an Artist in Australia?" Yes, but it's not as easy as it used to be. It's a very long title. <laughs> mm. And the interesting thing about this, which cited a uh, research by the Australia Council for the Arts, showed that um, women artists earn, are you ready for this, 44% less than men for their creative work, which (sighs) is massive. It wasn't 10%, wasn't 20%, wasn't even a third. It was 44% less. And I kind of... I knew it – I mean, it wouldn't have surprised me to know that it was less, but it did surprise me the amount, the proportion less it was. Does that surprise you, the the amount? Uh, <laughs> this is such a complicated topic. No, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Okay. It's really interesting that you say less. this. I, there was a bit of a an interesting discussion on Twitter yesterday afternoon that I had to walk away from right. because there was a bit of a of a set. It wasn't even a set to. It was a bit of a just that there was a sweeping statement about you know authors who weren't servicing their communities and how they have to you know um, do some talks and stuff for free because oh. there's that there's people aren't getting out to their communities and stuff like that. And so the thing I found really interesting about it, and I won't name all the people involved because it was a you know, fairly lengthy thing. Mm. But the thing I found really interesting about it is that I, I, I know a lot of female authors, obviously, because, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out there, I'm doing my stuff with them. And I don't know a single female author who's not regularly doing school talks for free. And if not, if, if only at their own kids' schools. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm. it's a you, – you're kind of out there in the middle of it. You see what's going on. If, you, if you're if you in an area like I am where, you know, you've got a fairly – like your social economic um, demographic is, is fairly low, there's – you know, some of the literacy levels around here are – are not brilliant and that's one of the reasons that I was so keen to get involved in this writers festival and do the children's festival mm. because I'm incredibly passionate about bringing authors to, to schools that can't afford them you know and mm. um and I, but I also know that there's this expectation um a lot of the time with schools like that, that, you know, they can't afford to pay for it. Um, they don't have the sort of resources that a lot of schools have. And so the idea of, of you know, bringing in an author for an hour and paying paying a fee or whatever. Um, but I was really annoyed by the entire Twitter conversation. I had to walk away from it. And this mm. is, here are people 
sit on your hands and then walk away. Don't you don't and then ring a friend, which is exactly what I did. I sat on my hands, I walked away, I rang a friend, I vented, I swore, I carried on like an absolute pork chop to my very understanding friend. We all felt much better afterwards. But you know, the reality is that uh, there's you know that there's a there are a lot of particularly that I know, and I'm only talking about my own personal you know community experience there are a lot of female authors I know that are doing a lot of work for free Mm -hmm. that I suspect is not also being done by the male authors that I know and Mm -hmm. and I think that that's where the that's where the earnings a part of the earnings problem comes from as well is just Mm the um I don't know about I can't speak for other female authors but the amount of guilt that I feel Mm. (laughs) that you know there are all these kids out there that you know aren't getting the benefit of of the, you know, author talks are a huge benefit to a school. I don't care what anyone says. You know, you go in there for an hour, you talk about books, you talk about writing. I always mm. try to get, you know, a writing workshop aspect into my author talks. I'm trying to give value as far as, you know, a little bit of teaching as well as talking about my books as well as, you know, and I'm all about, you know, ideas and, and you know, the kids get so excited and yeah. so inspired. And I get emails afterwards. Oh, they're all writing stories. Oh, they're all reading. Oh. It's, it's a huge impact that you can have on a on a school community in a short space of time. Because and on individual or, children. Because and individual on individual children. children. Will get because, well, that's right. And because kids are, are obviously, you know, it's, it's, um, authors are incredibly passionate people. You know, that's, it's part of the job of, you know, like part of what you need to do as a children's author is, is just get kids excited about reading. So they're very, very passionate people. Um, so I was very passionate about that particular discussion. And I'm very passionate about the fact that, yes, I have full belief that female artists are earning 44% less. That was okay, a very long right. and roundabout way of saying it. I'm sorry, there's a little, there was a little soapbox involved there. I'm, I'm just going to step down now and go back to, how are you, Al? Um, <laughs> I think you pushed a button there, Val. I clearly. Okay. Mm. So mm. Um, just to be clear, though, this was artists, more so visual artists. Yes. But, you I know. know, it is it, – it, 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 there's no doubt that uh, female authors also get paid less than male authors as a whole, if you took mm. an average. Um, and I guess my comment on that is if you – of course, it's great – A, it's great to be aware of it, it and, B, and it's great to be aware of the actual number as we are now for, you know, in this particular report anyway, um, just so that we know the status quo. But then, B, if you want that to change – I think that there are various um, courses of action that people can take, whether collectively or individually, um, that isn't just beyond – that is beyond lobbying and beyond saying, hey, we need to get paid more or, or you know, that sort of thing. Um, that certainly has, it, has its place and in certain situations you, you know, can lobby as a group or, or whatever – but ultimately, if visual artists or writers, because, you know, it, it is writers, it's not just authors, it's freelance writers, it's copywriters, it's all sorts of writers, right? Mm. Um, if you are offering value that people will pay more for, then – and if you are um, very clear about the value that you are bringing, it's about positioning yourself that you are actually worth a certain amount – and focusing on that as opposed to saying, well, men get paid this, I should get paid this, which is never going to, I feel, be a useful um, course of action. 
But if you and but if you position yourself as having a certain amount of value and people value that, that's great. But if you're saying it just that simply because men should you should get paid the same amount or whatever, um, you're actually reinforcing what you're doing is you are reinforcing the fact that this is the status quo, and therefore. <laughs> There are certain people out there, not all, there are certainly great, fair people out there, but there are certainly commercially driven people out there who will go, oh, okay, right. So if women are cheaper than men, I'm just going to employ more women. Mm. So I think it's all about, there's subtle nuances either way, but it's all about the positioning. I also think it's about a change in mindset too, because this is, and this is something that I'm really aware of, it is, um, I think that the some of the issue comes, and this is, I mean, this is something that, you know, we were writing stories about in Clio 20 years ago, Val, yes. when we were talking, writing stories about, you know, if you want a pay rise, you have to ask for one. Like, mm. you can't just, I think there's a certain, you know, you, you can't kind of, I mean, there was a lot of discussion in women's magazines about, you know, why, why, you know, why won't women go? It's just business. Why won't they go? No, I'm worth this. You need to pay me this. Or mm. no, I won't come to your school unless you pay me. Or you know what I mean? Like this, there's a business, there's a certain business aspect that I think that women need to sometimes step up towards um, a lot more than they do. And I think that's a mindset, um, a mindset issue. I mean, I just said, I mentioned the word guilt. Like, why am I talking mm. about guilt? Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, like it's, and I, and I think that that's something that, um, we, but all writers, it's not, not even just women. Like it's this notion that, you know, that, that people will expect you to, to write for nothing or will expect you mm. to, will say to you, oh, we're just a startup. We don't have any money at the moment, but you know, down the track, we're hoping to pay you. Well, I'm mm. sorry, but no, like, I'm. I think the time has passed because the, we reached cheap, um, you know, peak saturation now of everybody wanting everybody to work for free just because mm. it's supposed to be a fun job. And I think it's time for us all to go, no. Yep. Fair enough. Great. All right. Let's move on then. Um, good topic of conversation. And if you mm-hmm. are you guys are interested in continuing it, please continue it in the uh, podcast group on Facebook. So our competition this week, this is really cool. Thanks to Transmission Films, we have 10 double passes to... The Bookshop. Ooh. <laughs> yes, such a cool name. The Bookshop starring Bill Nye, Emily Mortimer uh, and Patricia Clarkson. Based on Penelope Fitzgerald's novel of the same name, The Bookshop is set in 1959. So the character Florence Green, a free-spirited widow, risks everything to open up a bookshop, the first such shop in the sleepy seaside town of Hardborough, England. Fighting damp, cold and considerable local apathy, she struggles to establish herself, but soon her fortunes change for the better. By exposing the local townsfolk to the best literature of the day, she opens their eyes. So if you want a double pass to check it out, we're looking for what you would call your own favourite bookshop and our favourite 10 will win. So all you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 21st of May 2018. If you're listening to this episode in the future, don't worry, there'll be another competition you can enter. But for now, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now, this is really cool. I love Bill Nye. I think he's awesome. Do you like Bill Nye or any of these people? I think that they're... I, I think the whole movie sounds like fun. Yeah, the builder, totally. the builder was reading it out to me in the paper on the weekend and I was like, yeah, that sounds like my kind of, that yes. sounds like my kind of movie. Definitely. Mm. Right. You're not going to now ask me what I'm going to call my bookshop, are you? 
Uh, oh, okay. Do you have a no, name? No, no. <laughs> All right, we'll move on then. Al? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> you sound so excited. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'm feeling a little, you know, battered. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? I couldn't be more ready. <laughs> All right, this is really cool. Okay, Rodomontade. Okay. Rodomontade. <laughs> R-O-D-O-M-O-N. T-A-D-E, Rotomontade. He sounds you know like, it yes. sounds like, do you want to know what it sounds like? Go it on. sounds like the hero of a, a, of a 1970s Mills and Boone. And <laughs> Montard entered the room, darkly well, dashing. It, it does actually come from a character in an epic poem. So last week, oh, you me. may remember, we had persiflage, which means light banter. And I noticed you actually did use it during the week, Al. So I'm <laughs> very, very excited about that. But this week we have rhodomontade, which, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, means vainglorious boasting or bragging, pretentious blustering talk. And as an aside, I think vainglorious is a cool word too. But Rodomontade comes from a boastful character called Rodomonti from a 15th century epic poem. So using it in a sentence, you might say, I'm tired of his conversation. He's full of Rodomontade. Cool, huh? Mm, very cool. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> well, I'm quite – you know, if it's not if he's not the hero of a romance novel, it sounds like it could be a soft drink. So I'm a little bit stuck. It with. does actually sound a little bit like a soft drink. Like it's because of the lemonade. lemonade vibe of it. Yeah, yeah I know. Mm. All right. Anyway, who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Our writer. Oh, this is exciting. Our writer in residence this week is Robin. Cadwallader, and I had to ask her several times how to actually pronounce that because there's a few different ways you could say it, and I'm hoping I've got it right there. Pretty sure I got it right in the intro, so let's hope that that was the correct one. Um, and this was a terrific interview because uh, Robin's book, The Book of Colours, speaks my language, her newest book, um, speaks my language. It's all about um, limners who were people who created beautiful, illuminated manuscripts. Um, and it's set in London. And she has just done the most beautiful job of not only sort of, you know, giving the whole vibe of, of the research involved in this book just blows my mind, but um, not only giving the whole vibe of what it was like to be a limna, but the feel of London at the time and the, the setting. It was just, it's, it's a wonderful read. I really, really enjoyed it. And I have been recommending it to everyone since. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Robin Cadwallader has published numerous prize-winning short stories and reviews, as well as a book of poetry and a non-fiction book based on her PhD thesis concerning attitudes to virginity and women in the Middle Ages. In 2015, her debut novel, The Anchoress, was published to great acclaim, and her second novel, The Book of Colours, was published in April 2018. Welcome to the program, Robin. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. All right, so we're going to go back to the beginning of your novel writing career. How did mm -hmm. The Anchoress come to be published? Uh, well, uh, it, it was a long, slow process from my point of view. Um, I, I had been writing a PhD, as you said, on uh, virginity and women in the Middle Ages, and, and I, I was particularly focusing on 
a story about St Margaret of Antioch, who was a, a virgin martyr who was swallowed by a dragon and burst out the dragon's back. Uh, and she, so she proclaimed herself um, a dragon slayer, which was um, a remarkable thing for the Middle Ages. And uh, and I became interested in in why this book was be this story was being given to to women to read, and in particular, it was being given to these women called anchoresses. Now, I'd never heard of an anchoress, so I investigated and discovered that they were women who sealed themselves away in a cell voluntarily there to pray and to suffer with Christ, as the language was. And uh, and I was quite um, horrified and fascinated at the same time, and I just kept reading. And the more I read, the more I... I just wondered who would do this and why would they do that and what would it what would the experience be like and and I had been interested in writing I'd, I've always written but I was interested in writing a novel not sure if I could do it and I played around with could I write a novel about this woman but every time I thought about it, it seemed like it was just way too difficult. So I wrote a few bits and pieces and uh, just didn't know, didn't, didn't know how to take it further, I think. So I, anyway, I kept on writing, wrote poetry. And then I, I left my position as a university lecturer and uh, had some time to myself. And I thought, well... You don't want to die wondering. So I just started writing, uh, entered a couple of competitions, won a, a competition. I only had bits and pieces of this novel written and entered a competition uh, and won it to my absolute surprise. A surprise is probably too too pale a word. I was, <laughs> I was amazed. Uh and and that made me think, right, you've got something here. So I just kept kept writing with with actually very little sense that I could ever really get it published, but I wanted to finish this this um this story. And and then when it came time to to send it out, there were you know, I tried the pictures, the Monday pitch and the Friday whatever they're called, you know, where mm. you can just send in a few a couple of chapters didn't do very well with that, so I I tried for an agent. Uh, got myself an agent very quickly, which was again a, a huge surprise because everybody told me they were almost impossible to find. And she was very excited and uh, took it from there to to the UK and the US as well, and to France, um, and, and managed to find publishers. Uh, so it was. It was a yeah. It was a remarkable journey, and and one I had not imagined in my wildest dreams would happen. Uh, my little book, you know, I thought. Um, so yeah, it was. It was um, very exciting to go from not knowing whether I could even write a story, had you know, create a story, to to the point of being published. 
So how long did all that take? Like how long was that process from that sort of that sort of start of the idea of could I do this to oh my book is selling all over the world? How long did that take? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon about. 12 years okay so persistence uh, was part of this journey right yeah and well the you know I was writing little bits and pieces but nothing much from the time I sat down and said okay I'm gonna ha- give this a shot I think it was probably about five years mm, okay. uh, there was there was one large gap where a publisher showed a bit of interest and then held on to it for seven months without letting me know any mm, isn't anything. that frustrating uh yeah and I you know um a woman in the industry said to me for heaven's sake write and ask them um what's going on and they just wrote back and said no we're not interested uh so uh they could have told me that seven months earlier <laughs> which mm. would have been then. Uh, but apart from that uh it was really it took me two or three years to write and you know and then you know, editing and mm. and all of that took another year or, or two. So. so given that the entire book is set within the confines of a stone cell measuring seven paces by nine, it's a very mm-hmm. restricted setting. Shall we just say that? Yes. How did how yes. did you how did you work with well, I guess both with the restrictions and within the restrictions to tell the story? Well, um, there are a couple of things about Anchoresses that um, that uh, open out the story a little bit. That she has two maids hmm. who uh, who don't live in the cell with her, but uh, live in a little room next to her. So she has contact with them. She has a confessor who comes to see her uh, most weeks. And so she she speaks to him and confesses her sins, whatever. Uh, though she doesn't she doesn't look out, so she must never look out her window. At, at she has a window with a curtain, she must never look out that window. But she has contact, and she also has contact with women in the village who come for counsel. Mm. Uh, and and the other thing, one of the things that most fascinated me is that. This cell is built next to the village church, and if you um, you might know that village churches, uh, particularly or town churches in the Middle Ages, were the centre of social life mm. as well as religious life. Everything happened in the church. Meetings happened in the church because it was often the only place that was dry and large enough for people to meet. Uh, you know that celebrations, all their all their celebrations were focused around church festivals, um, May Day, All Saints, Yule, um, Michaelmas. All sorts of festivals happened there. Uh, so there was there was an awful lot going on just the other side of her wall because the the cell actually it mm. was attached to the side wall of the church. Uh, plus. Uh, She's right in the middle of the village, so everything is happening around her. Mm. And and as I thought about this woman in her cell, I realised that she would be uh, – she couldn't see out. And what I hear from people who, who are sight impaired is that once one sense is dulled, 
and the other senses are heightened. So I I imagine that her sense of hearing, she would hear what's going on all around her. She would hear people, you know, arguing, people talking, people harvesting, all sorts of things happening, people arguing, people in the church next door, mm. you know, people having sex in the church next door at night because that's the only place they could go, all those sorts of things. And so while on one hand she was counselled to um, uh, custody of the senses, you know, she had to sort of contain her senses and, and – uh, she has a rule which tells her that she is to um, to contain every single sense. It goes through chapter by chapter telling her mm. um, all of this. But at the same time, her senses are actually being heightened because she's there in this cell by mm. herself. All she has is her own body, her, you know, her sense of taste and smell and uh, hearing and touch – I imagine, is, is really heightened. So uh, that in itself offers, as along with the people outside, all of that offers much more happening than just a woman sitting, praying, doing nothing. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, and it's such an interesting point of view, like as a narrative device, it's a really interesting point of view, like to be in the middle of it, but to be unseen and to be unseeing is yes. is a really interesting point of view. It is, yes. That that um and that that was the one really the thing that this sort of central idea that that carried me through the whole story. And I knew that I knew that I, I, I needed to maintain a sense of uh, almost claustrophobia, but I knew that I couldn't overdo that, otherwise people would simply give up reading it. Mm. Uh, so I, um, the, the other element, the other thread in the story is that the, her counsellor who comes, uh, because he's, his own journey is a significant part of the story as well, mm. and he... Uh, his story is told in third person, but very limited to to him. So it's a very close third person account. So we do get outside the cell in uh, in a limited way mm. uh, through through her counsellor, but uh, and that so it kind of gives us a bit of fresh air. I mean, there is a sense in which the cell feels almost stuffy and smelly and, mm. uh, you know, overwhelming. So moving outside with the counsellor, seeing him walk through the village is actually a kind of, it is as if you can breathe. Breathing space. Uh, yeah. Well, it sounds fascinating. So I'll, clearly that's now on my list. But <laughs> your your affinity for, um, for, you know, medieval history and literature is obviously very, very strong. Um, can you imagine yourself kind of writing any other kind of story? Like, would would you have been a writer without that deep knowledge of 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 those things? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I love a good question. <laughs> so do I. Now I have to answer it. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to answer it. <laughs> I think I think I would. Uh, um, I, I think the reason that I, I mean, I, 
I love medieval stories because they're, but you know, despite probably their bad stereotype, is that you know they have such life and such, uh, you know that they are fairy stories and it's not just simply knights and ladies but that you know they have a sense of another world just living right next to people and i mm. think that's what i love about the medieval world uh, and that's what kind of um fires my imagination when i read medieval literature but i think i think i would have written anyway uh I think what what the anchoress offered to me was that it that it tapped into my um, my poetic sensibility about taking a moment or taking a small space in time or taking a taking something that limited and and exploring it a little bit of you know see the world in a grain of sand you know Blake's yeah, yeah. idea. And and so what the anchoress offered was the chance to take this small cell, this woman in this small cell, and explore what else could could be there, you know, to to open it up and see so much more in it. Yeah. So I think that's why I began began with uh, well the anchoress was the reason that I began with medieval history. I'm not a particularly I'm not a huge lover of historical fiction myself. Mm. I know that there are some historical fiction writers who only write historical fiction. I've never thought that I particularly that I was writing historical fiction more that I was writing fiction really. Mm. It just happened to be set in the Middle Ages. I'm not you know, I'm not a kings and queens type um, person. I'm not interested in particularly in the goings-on of kings and queens and politics. I'm much more interested in ordinary people. So, and in that sense, uh, I'm intrigued about the idea that of of how people in the Middle Ages lived within their their belief systems and their, you know, the limitations of their technology, their, you know, their Mm. city. Their health system, their philosophy, um, yeah. So, I I do hope to expand beyond the Middle Ages mm. at some point. At some point, <laughs> but not yet, because of course the Book of Colors, which I have read and just loved, um, because you know you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is you know is is again we're in that world, but it's a it's a bigger world, and it's a more kind of you know from the perspective of I guess the just the setting the whole bit. Um, but um, can you want to tell us a little bit about the Book of Colors, and then I'll go into asking you some you know minute questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, well, the Book of Colors is set in in the thirteen thirteen twenty. 1322 um, in in London uh, and and at that period in in um, in England and across Europe there was a really severe famine uh, which lasted for seven years and so it left people um, without crops without homes because everything flooded it was a it was a really uh, very 
difficult time. There was also a time of political unrest, um, the country on the brink of civil war and actually moving into civil wars. So uh, it's actually really different setting from my little um, village in the Anchores. Uh, and and but the story focuses on a woman of the aristocracy who commissions a book of uh, hours, which is a prayer book, uh, to be to be copied and decorated for her use to pray, but also as a sign of status. Really, that's these these expensive books were a sign that we have money, we have prospects, which was so important for the aristocracy. Uh, and and so the book is uh, decorated by a group of limners, as they were called, or illuminators, uh, living in Paternoster Row, which is right next to St Paul's Cathedral. And uh, the story tells of these. Uh, there are four four limners and a, a young apprentice. And as the story goes along, that you get the sense of these these people painting, and they're painting religious paintings substantially. Uh, but as they engage with with the pictures, their own lives, their own memories, their own concerns come uh, sort of slowly emerge, and it becomes apparent that uh, at least three of them have stories, secrets from their own lives that they, that they are not telling others and that really impinge on the book and on the process of the book being completed. Mm. So that's probably about as far as I can no, I that's, can that's an point. excellent, excellent, <laughs> and I'm sure that regular listeners will now understand my um, my deep interest in this in this particular novel. Now, I, I was dazzled by the detail in it. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, which is, you know, but quite precise. Like it's a very precise building of a picture, which is, you know, pretty much what illumination is. Um, yes, so yes. I would think the the difficulty for you, given, I mean, I can feel the knowledge that you have. And I know that with most of this stuff, um, you know, it's the iceberg thing, isn't it? You know, you've got, the, yes, you've got yes. the bottom and you got the top and we just need to see the bits we need to see. So I would imagine for you it would have been about choosing which details to use and which to leave out. Is that the case? I mean, did you find yourself having to think about how much you were sort of like how much description, how much detail, how much um, you were putting in there and maybe, you know, think about pairing it back in places or building it up in places? Like it's it's important for the pacing, isn't it, as far as it how is. much detail you use and how much you yes. don't. Um, was it difficult? Uh, there, there were points where I did need to pair back, but I, but I have a, a very s strong. Um, it, it does, it's not actually a discipline, but more it's it's a way of writing that uh, everything that happens <clears throat> that I include and, and any detail that I include has to be there because it. It, it is significant for that particular character. Mm. So in the Anchoress, um, <clears throat> there are points where I needed to, say, describe the cell. And I um, I wanted to be very clear about not adding bits and pieces of information that would be outside 
my anchoress's immediate concerns. Mm. So it, it's a matter of slowly building a picture then. And in the same way with this, that I uh, <clears throat> that I made every detail something that that character would think about or would be doing or be concerned with, mm. if that, if that yep. makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Uh, so I stopped myself uh, adding stuff in and every now and then it, was, it, it would create a bit of a problem because I'd need to communicate some information uh, to, so that the, the reader could make sense of what's going on. But so I had to be very careful about crafting the material that, that I had to strictly to the characters and their experience. So how much research do you do before you begin? Have you done everything you need to do or are you still researching as you go? I do enough research to feel comfortable and to begin to place my characters inside um, inside the situation. <clears throat> probably... Probably the most significant moment for me was um, when 2013, actually, excuse me, when I um, I was in the British Library. Sorry, I'm going to have to have a drink here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was in, in the British Library doing research, and I and I was reading an academic book about art history and they were talking about illuminated manuscripts and uh, and and they can actually distinguish different painters according to the style and the color and the the way they the, the way they go about shaping their figures whatever and and they met, and there was a detailed description of one particular manuscript and I discovered that the the library held that manuscript, the actual original mm. 14th century manuscript. So they, uh, if, you've, if you've got enough credentials, you can actually ask to borrow to, you know, to look at these manuscripts. So I sat with this with original manuscript and the description of the different illuminators and how this, this you know, we can tell that this is, um, artist A because, you know, the shading wow. is so good, the colour is this and that. We can tell this is artist B because uh, there's such a, a good sense of depth and energy in in a crowd. And we can tell this is artist C because the hands are too big and that artist clearly hasn't had enough training <laughs> and this and that. Uh, and as I sat there, my characters just started to – emerge uh, and, and even though the book that I described being created is very different from the one that I looked at in the British Library, uh, that, that was a moment where they began to appear. But So I had, had this sense of them in this little room um, working but I didn't have – I didn't have all the detail about how they would paint. I yeah. didn't have London outside the door. Um, I didn't have the politics. So I did 
huge amounts of research on all of that. Um, found myself a, a reconstructed map of London in the 14th century um, and read manuals of, um, you know, um, guides for illumination. Um, I read um, the current, um, you know, contemporary writing about what, what the pigments and things would have been like in the Middle Ages because they they didn't write a lot about it back then or we don't have that material. So I, um, so I was reading back about the science of pigment and painting and style. Uh, and I – there was a point where I just told myself I had to start working or I would research forever. forever. <laughs> and uh, I felt – I was so conscious of how big a project it was that I was a bit I was a bit nervous, uh, and that held me back from writing for a little while until I finally wrote a paragraph in uh, in the voice of my um, illuminator's wife, Gemma, mm. uh, and it was then I can remember the moment, and I thought. Oh, hallelujah! I have, I have Gemma's voice, and from there I could start to write the others. Um, so, and then it it took off. But I did a lot of research as well along the way. So, had you, you planned know? the story as part of that research, in the sense of I'm trying to get a sense of what your writing process would be, because the book itself, the Book of Colors, feels very precise and considered, and I can't imagine it kind of pouring out of you in a rush. Or is that how your first drafts work? Uh, no, they don't. They don't pour out in a rush. Mm. Sadly, uh, no. They, <laughs> Wouldn't they that kind be easier? Of, <laughs> they kind of um, eke their way along. Mm. Uh, I, I don't plan. Um, I I had I had a sense of mm, of the beginning, and I had a very vague sense of the ending, but I didn't know how I was going to get from one point to the other mm. uh, and I yeah I just wrote okay. uh, so, some of it was writing bits you know like a chapter here I just want to write about this uh, sometimes it was I want to write about that particular illumination or that particular bit of decoration or whatever mm. uh, but but uh, I try uh, I yeah, I tried to keep it chronological, I think, but I, it didn't always work and there was a huge amount of um, reorganising, mm. uh, particularly because I have two different timelines mm. running through it. Yes, it's all very complicated, really. I mean, when you read it, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel complicated, but when That's I actually good. think about the various bits and pieces that you've got going on, because you, it's also about – I mean, it's about a book, obviously, but it also contains a book within a book, um, yes. excerpts yes. of which, you know, are at the start of each chapter and inform the reader as we go. So we're learning as we go about various aspects of, of the craft, um, which is, you know, very helpful. Um, but, you know, so how did you manage the process of those excerpts? Did you write all of those separately and then bang them in at the, t the chapters where they fitted or did you know, I mean, how did you do that bit? Uh, it, was a bit, it was a combination of both. Some of them, uh, the, the early ones particularly, I wrote to – because the, the, 
the theme of these little ex- excerpts kind of picks up the theme of the chapter. Mm. Uh, and the early ones particularly, which were the sort of the philosophy of, in, in many ways, the philosophy of illumination uh, substantially, uh, they, they, I wrote them to fit the chapter mm. uh, as, as I wrote the chapter. Some of the later ones I wrote uh, separately. Sometimes I would just sit down, I can't, I don't know, where to go with this story, and I'd write an excerpt uh, from the book. And I, I actually loved writing them. They were such fun. Mm. I had to do quite a lot of research, but but writing in that kind of style of this is this, you know, I'm the expert telling mm. you about. Instructional, yeah. Yeah, I, I really, I just really enjoyed doing that and getting a little bit of the, I hope, the flavour of the language of the time mm. or the language of that style of book. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, and I'm fascinated with, with the process in itself, you know, of grinding. And I think we tend to, well, I tended to assume that, you know, you grind up a bit of rock and get the right pigment and you put off a bit of go. water and a bit of whatever <laughs> else, yeah, and off you go and you're fine. But the little details like how much you can grind and don't grind too much and, you know, you need to put urine in this and you need yeah. to put apple juice in that. I loved those <laughs> those little details. I just, yeah, they, they were just full of. Maybe you can just produce that as a little leather-bound book as a special, <laughs> just for those of us who might be interested. Um, <laughs> when you are um, – when you're working on a manuscript, are you do you write every day, or do you write every day as a matter of course, or what's your kind of you know routine per se? I, I do write every day uh, when when I'm work when I'm working. Um, it's 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 interesting at the moment. I'm not I'm not working on anything yet, and I'm doing a lot of um, marketing and other bits and pieces and admin, and I'm a bit grumpy and I realise that's because I'm not writing <laughs> and I want to be back sort of creating something, you know. Um, so I, uh, yeah, but when I'm when I'm working, I write on, on a project I write every day and try to keep myself to a, a, a reasonable timetable for the day. I'm not a particularly structured person in that sense, but uh, but I do... I get to the point where I just feel like I have to be back there at the desk. And, you know, maybe, you know, as I said, it it can happen really slowly and I can get stuck. And, Mm. but, uh, you know, I absolutely agree that you just have to get something down on paper. You have to get something written. Uh, How, how, sorry, how long would it take you to, to do a first draft? Would you, would you imagine? Just the writing bit, leaving the research aside, which is obviously months. Uh, first, that's a really good question. Um, I reckon about a year. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think. Okay. This, this took me three years altogether. Yeah. Um, and it probably, yeah, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say about a year. I did get to a point where I was just – I kind of run out of steam and direction and I sent it off to my agent who 
wrote back to me with some pertinent questions, which was basically what I needed. I just needed a bit of a nudge. Yeah. Uh, you've got some story, but you need to kind of fill it out. And, and that was really helpful. Mm. Um, All right. Yeah. Well, switching gears a little, you've recently put together a new website, which is lovely and based on the cover of the Book of Colours. I get the feeling that the whole idea of an author platform doesn't altogether come naturally to you, but is it just just a (laughs) feeling I'm getting? That idea. I didn't do it back in medieval Middle Ages, Um, but is it something that you've learned to embrace? You know, over over time. It is. I yeah, I was one of those people who just said, "Why should I have to do this?" And nobody wants to hear what I have to say anyway. And why would I? Why you know? Why would I spend my time doing that? It's just going to go out into the ether, and nobody's going to look at it. Mm. Uh, and I I did start a blog, and it kind of fizzled, uh, sadly, but probably because of that, because I just wasn't sure what I was doing and whether anybody was going to read it. Uh, but I think actually what's helped me is that that I have been on social media on particularly on Facebook and on Twitter. And and I've really enjoyed conversations with other writers and with mm. other with readers. Uh, and I found that uh, while I entirely understand the the drawbacks and the dangers. I also really uh, have just enjoyed it as a place to to have a conversation, particularly if I'm here by myself, you know, all day, yeah. every day writing. Yeah. There's there's something really nice about just being able to go online and say this chapter just will not work or whatever. <laughs> have have someone write back and say, "Yep, know how you feel." <laughs> you know those kinds of things, and just. Um, I like discovering that there's a very friendly world out there in social media uh, and being an introvert, that idea doesn't come naturally to me. So uh, that that has helped and, uh, and I realised that second book coming out, there's not going to be quite as much um, energy from the publisher as usual and as there was with the first one and I need to be um, getting out there. So, uh, yeah, I've I've even published a newsletter. Um, Ooh, look at you go. Uh, fire. <laughs> which, uh, which was I was resistant. I can remember having a conversation with you about that, Alison, <laughs> saying, but I really don't want to do it and, and I did it and thought, Actually, this is this is quite fun. You know, I get to tell people about our alpacas and their impending birth, and uh, their babies that are that are due to be born any day now. And uh, you know, what books I'm reading. A friend wrote to me and said, uh, "It's so good to to hear what you're reading at the moment." You know, and yeah. that that kind of interaction is just is is really nice. And so. Um, and I've discovered that once I get myself set up, it's not quite as time-consuming as I thought it would be, which is good. Uh, and I did my website substantially by myself with uh, some input from my son and quite a bit from the the very friendly people at WordPress who uh, sat there patiently and answered all my questions. <laughs> They're and- very good, aren't they? <laughs> they were they were excellent. I didn't. I 
cynical as I am, I didn't expect them to be as helpful as they are. And I, I now have a little list um, of questions to ask them to sort of fine tune the bits and pieces on the website that aren't quite right. But uh, for me, being non, um, you know, I don't, I'm not particularly happy with technology generally, I, I felt quite proud of myself that I'd managed to kind of get this website together and even had people say, wow, it's really nice, you know. So that's been – it's actually been a, a very positive journey. So. Fantastic. Well done. All right, we're going to finish up today with our famous, infamous last question. Um, what <laughs> famous, infamous, What are your um, top three tips for writers? Top three tips – uh, my first one would be be really wary of advice. Uh, there, there are just so many people out there who will say, you can't be a writer unless you do this or do that. And a writer, only, a, you know, a writer will only do this or that way. Or you have to write every day. If you don't write every day, you're not serious. You know, all those kinds of bits and pieces of advice that I think you just have to be really wary of. I'm not saying that, that there isn't good advice, but pick and choose mm. where you take your advice from advice. and be be wary of the absolutes, you know, the people who have an absolute um, that will sort of tie you down. I think you've got to, which leads on to my second point, which is to back yourself and your own voice mm. and what it is that you want to do. Uh, um, it was Stephen Carroll that said to me, you've just got to back yourself. And I've that has just um, echoed through, you know, writing um, both novels, that, that his voice just saying, mm. back yourself. Uh, you have to trust in what you're doing. Uh, when all the voices tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. And my third one is obviously read and then write. And I know that's, you know, everybody says it, don't they? But they everybody says it because it's... Because it's true. Really good advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just, yeah, if you're going to pick only one piece of advice, choose that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Just read uh, and read broadly, um, I tend to think of myself as a non-fiction reader and then I realise that I actually read a huge amount of non-fiction in my research um, and I and I love to read any kind of fiction. The broader, the better, I think. Mm. Um, and, and write. Don't fuss around waiting for something. Just write anything, you know. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And um, I, I do recommend the, the book, The Book of Colours. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, and you guys can find more information about Robin um, in the show notes uh, or at what is your website address, Robin, your new, brand new spanky website? <laughs> it's it's just com. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, best of luck. The spelling of my name right. Oh, yes. Uh, Do you want to spell that the, out for us? The tricky thing. It's C-A-D-W-A-L-L-A-D-E-R. Fantastic. And we will, of course, put the link in the show notes, uh, which you will find at writerscentre.com.au forward slash podcast. All right. Well, thank you very much and um, best of luck with the new book. Thank you very much. I've had a wonderful time. Thanks.
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There we go, Robin and the book and book of colours. Um, I I learned stuff. Oh, honestly, it's the the actual um, the book within the book, which we talked about in the interview, mm. where you know one of the main characters is, is actually creating a guide on how to be a limna for her apprentice son. Um, is is so interesting and informative. Uh, you know, it's kind of like and each of the little snippets that you know how to grind pigments, how to you know do whatever mm. relates to what's going on in the main body of the story like it's all a very it's a very kind of woven together um quite lovely thing and the language is beautiful I really I really liked the book I could, and and I will definitely go back and read the anchoress now that I've spoken to her about it because when I first read about that a few years ago I sort of thought oh, how are you going to make that interesting like a woman in a <laughs> in a cupboard basically <laughs> seriously um but you know since I've interviewed her and I've been talking about that particular book with a whole range of other authors that I know and they were like oh my god the anchoress was amazing you have to read that so anyway there you go awesome all right so Al what have you got in in this coming week uh good question I'm writing things um what else am I doing I don't know. I, I'm a bit all over the shop at the moment. I've got a whole range of little jobs on. Obviously, I'll be, um, you know, working on the writing festival stuff and mm. um, we've got the children's course launching soon, Val. So, yes. I've got, you know, I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing about that, writing blog posts or whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I'm, you know, there's just bits and pieces. I'm having a bit of a bits and piecey kind of time at the moment. I'm still waiting to hear on my submissions and I think that's one of the reasons I'm a bit scattered. So Ah, yes. Yes, I keep saying to everyone, waiting, you know, keep writing because the waiting will drive you crazy if you're not working on something else. It will drive you crazy. Trust me. Keep writing for sure. Mm. Okay. Awesome. What about you? What am I doing? I'll be eating my chocolate crackles. I intend On a day that none of us will know about because Facebook won't tell us. That's right. (laughs) I will be going to the Archibald because I'm interested to see this year's finalists. Um, I will be uh, one of my mentorees writing a nonfiction book, which is so awesome. Um, I'm going through his second draft Mm. and my – Another one of my inventories, I am helping him structure with structure, basically. Hmm. So, yes, busy, busy, busy. Um, where do we find you on uh, online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, where I promise I don't get on my soapbox very often. Mm-hmm. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Valerie Koo on Facebook. Just search for me and it's, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm the one in Sydney. And, of course, we hang out in the podcast community on Facebook as well. Just mm. uh 
search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.